Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today we're going to do a deep dive on the reigning NBA champion, Cleveland Cavaliers. I'm here with Benjamin Wings. Ben, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right, all things considered. So let's start off with the most important thing to talk about when you're talking about this Cleveland Cavaliers team. Their finals win last year, bringing a championship to the city of Cleveland for the first time in 52 years. What was that like? The atmosphere in, well, I don't live near Cleveland, but I live in a group where there's a bunch of Cavs fans around, and the atmosphere for Game 7 was absolutely electric. When the score was tied for like the last minute and Kyrie hit that shot, everyone around me went crazy. I jumped off my couch. I called my grandma. It was absolutely, the atmosphere was electric. Yeah, that Game 7 was just, it was close the whole way through, and... For it to end the way it did, you know, with the Irving three and the LeBron block was just spectacular. Oh, and not to mention the love stop, because he if he lets Curry get by and he gets an easy three, who knows if we're even having the same conversation right now. It's hard to go back and sort of look at what could have changed in that situation, but Kevin Love's defense might have been the most surprising of those three moments, because you kind of expect Kyrie to hit those shots. You can't ever count LeBron out of any defensive play when he's looking for that chase down block, but Kevin Love stayed on Steph Curry that whole possession, and he just he prevented what could have been a huge moment for the Warriors. I absolutely agree. The craziest thing in my mind was that he had to do it twice because don't forget he passed it back out and got the ball back. So Kevin had to do it twice and he did a phenomenal job. All right, let's move on to a quick look at the Cavs offseason. They lost Matthew Delavidova, which will hurt. It'll leave a big hole in their backup point guard rotation. But they did get a few new players, and probably the biggest of those acquisitions was Mike Dunleavy. He's a guy who can shoot the ball, who is a solid passer, not a great defender, but not atrocious either. How's he looked so far this year? Mike Dunleavy Jr. has had a bit of a rough start to the year. In the preseason, he looked good. But to start the year, you know, he's only getting around 16 minutes a game. So it's a still a small sample size. You know, seven games have been played, but he's only shooting 35% from deep. You're not going to need to get more out of Mike Dunleavy than that. He's a better shooter than that, but I think he'll find his stroke as the season goes on. I'm almost more surprised by the fact that he's only got one assist per game so far. He's... He's been a much better passer than that for most of his career, so hopefully hopefully he can keep getting everyone else involved, especially on a team like Cleveland. Oh yeah, because there's always going to be shooters on the wing. He'll always have somebody to pass to. I think those numbers will have to go up. So the other two guys they acquired are DeAndre Liggins and Chris Anderson. I'm assuming they're not going to play that much. So far this year, they have 14 and 14 minutes, respectively. Do you think either of them is going to get major playing time, or are they just end-of-the-bench guys to fill out the roster? I think that Birdman has more of a potential to get big minutes, big being relative, compared to Liggins, because he has those six fouls. Now, Liggins has six fouls also, but Birdman is is an enforcer. He's going to be the goon coming off the bench. If they need to touch somebody up, say a Paul George in a playoff series, Birdman's going to come in the game. Now, DeAndre Liggins, great defender. He's two-time D-League Defensive Player of the Year, so obviously he's going to be a serviceable defender, but his offensive game is just lacking so far behind his defense right now. I don't know if he has enough to actually get on the floor and produce. Yeah, I think Liggins' niche would be if he could play backup or third string point guard, but he's not that kind of player. He's a wing through and through, and 
Cleveland has a lot of guys that are ahead of him in that wing rotation. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. So let's move on to just a quick look at their draft. And when I say their draft, I mean one person in particular, because Cleveland had one draft pick this offseason, Kay Felder, who is only 5'9", but makes up for that in pretty much every way you could expect a 5'9 guy to. He's, he's strong, he's really aggressive defensively, he led the NCAA in assists last year. What have you seen out of him so far? Well, Kay Felder showed a lot in the summer league. He had a knack for getting his teammates the ball in good position to score. He was good at scoring himself, even. He was a great scorer in college. The problem with Kay right now, though, is the fact that, A, he's a rookie and he's not getting many minutes, and he started the season with a concussion, so the Cavs don't want to rush him into the lineup at the moment. But he's been looking good in the practices that I've seen in the preseason. He looked good. And the Cavs obviously believe in him because they bought that pick outright from Atlanta. So they have to believe in him. So I think good things will come from Kay Felder. Well, I'm not sure it's not just that they have to believe in him. It's that they need him. Oh, they absolutely do. Yeah, they don't have anyone who's a traditional point guard on their roster at all. And Kay Felder is the closest thing they have. Even though Kyrie is not a traditional point guard, he still will soak up a lot of minutes at that position. But they have no one behind him. So depending on how Felder develops, he could play a big role maybe as early as this year. Maybe that's, you know, looking too far ahead with him since he is only a rookie. But Cleveland could really use some production out of him this year. I would be surprised if they didn't get production out of him as the year goes on. Yeah, especially as he works himself back from that concussion. So let's go into a quick preview slash overview of the season. How has the starting lineup looked for them so far? The starting lineup has actually been quite a pleasant surprise. In the past, you know, it's been LeBron, then it's been Kyrie, and then Kevin was an afterthought. This year, it's so balanced. Kevin, Kyrie, and LeBron are all averaging over 22 points a game, and they're all within, I think, 15 total points scored of each other. So I couldn't imagine a scenario where the offense is more balanced with the big three. The problem is that JR, because of his holdout this year, has been slow to start off the year. He's only shooting 33% from distance this year, so that's going to have to get better. But Thompson has come back from last year. He didn't have a holdout this year, so he got a full offseason with the team, and he's looked incredible in the moments that he's been on the floor. The interesting thing about JR for me is not only is he only shooting 33% from deep, but he's shooting 25% on two-point shots. He's been taking a lot of bad two-point shots. Like, normally, he'll get in the lane for one or two layups a game that he could possibly get, but this year, he's been taking a lot of, like, turnaround jumpers that are heavily defended and just bad. Like, it's New York JR before he got traded, and that's not really what we need. Yeah, so the other obvious thing to talk about with the season so far is Cleveland was the last team to remain undefeated. They lost a very close one to the Hawks to put them at 6-1, and one. but there is no championship hangover so far from this team. Oh, absolutely not. Tyron Lue had a full offseason with the guys this year, and they got to fully implement his system over the course of the offseason. Last year, they were still running a hybrid of what Blatt had been running and what Lue wanted to do. So this year, with the full offseason, all the guys have bought in. They're all running the floor. The things that Tyron Lue wants them to do, they are doing now. They're actually running the floor. The pace has increased, and because of that increased pace and because of the way that the ball is moving, the offense looks so much better, which is helping them to score points. Yeah, they're currently first in the league in offensive rating and second in the league in points per game. 
Their defense has been mediocre, but that offense is looking fantastic. Well, and if you score a lot of points, like Mike D'Antoni likes to say, the best defense is an offense that outscores the opponent, and that's what they've been doing so far, except for the Hawks game last night. What I think has been the most interesting trend slash early return from this season is how much LeBron has been looking to pass the ball and to run things as more of a playmaker than a scorer. This is the first time in as long as I can remember that he's not leading his team in scoring. He's currently right behind Kyrie Irving at a little under 23 points a game, but he's also just barely under 10 assists per game. So I guess it's not fair to say he's easing off in his scoring because he's only down about three points from where he was last season, three points per game from where he was last season. But do you think that trend is going to continue? I hesitate to say that he won't lead the team in scoring because I know LeBron James is prideful about that kind of stuff and he doesn't want to get outscored by a teammate, but I wouldn't be shocked either because the way it's coming out this year is that LeBron's going to be effectively the point guard. He's going to get his teammates involved early and it's he's been doing that. He had games of 14 assists like you said he's averaging just he's averaging 9.9 assists a game, which is 1.3 assists higher than his best career mark. So I do think that this trend will continue, but I also think that his scoring will come up. And on the scoring front, this might be his last and best chance to win MVP, especially if the Cavs can continue to have the best record in the league. So it's entirely possible that he does decide that he cares about that enough to start shooting the ball more. But he's also, and maybe it's too early in the season to make any sort of declaration about how this is going to last long term, but he's also currently at his career high in rebounds in addition to his increased playmaking. Well, I guess playmaking just in terms of assists, but leading his career high in rebounding and assists is remarkable at the age of 32. Yeah. I had wondered before the season started if he would try to average a triple-double this year, but the more that I thought about it, the more energy he'll have to expend getting those rebounds, getting those points, getting those assists. It's just not going to be worth it come the playoffs, and he knows that. Let's move on to just a quick discussion of the big man rotation. Talk a little bit about Birdman Anderson maybe getting minutes. Do you think they need a fourth big alongside Kevin Love, Tristan Thompson, and Channing Frye? Do you think maybe LeBron's going to see more time at the four to try and offset those big man issues? I do think LeBron will get more time at the four as the year goes on. The reason being is that when he has that ball in the post, he can kick it out to the open shooters because they're going to be open because the defense has no choice but to collapse on him. So yes, I think he'll get more time at the four, even though he might not want to do that. But I don't think that they need to go get another big man. If you really need to, you can put Dunleavy at the four because he's only an inch shorter than Kevin Love, but he is a much thinner build. So no, I think that the big man rotation that they have right now with Thompson, Fry, and Love will serve them fine without needing to go get more minutes from Birdman or seek someone on the market. Yeah, I always thought of Mike Dunleavy as more of a wing than a four. I just, I don't think he's big enough. I think you're absolutely right on that one. You know, he is 6'9", but he's not 6'9", and bulky and he's also not 6'9 and the kind of guy who's going to bang in the post with any sort of success. Oh, absolutely not. No. If you're looking for him to stop LaMarcus Aldridge every night, it's not going to happen. If you're looking for him to score on LaMarcus Aldridge in the post every night, it's not going to happen. So yeah, I agree with you. All right, let's move from the discussion of Mike Dudley at the four 
to a discussion of where he's probably actually going to play, which is on the wing. So Cleveland's wing rotation seems pretty obvious to me. It's going to be LeBron, it's going to be J.R. Smith, it's going to be Iman Shumpert, it's going to be Richard Jefferson, who I'm assuming will be mostly a three, although maybe he's better suited for that small ball four role than Dunleavy is. You know, I... I think Richard Jefferson would fit better as a small ball four just because he seems like he has more of a mean streak to him, even though he's like one of the nicest guys on the team. But I don't think Richard can or Jefferson can play the four for an extended period of time. If he plays as a small ball four, I think that's a good look because then you could move Dunleavy over to the three and everybody's happy. But putting Jefferson at the four for an extended period of time, I just think will end up causing problems. Yeah, anyway, we promised to move on to the wings, so let's actually move on to the wings. Does Jordan McRae have a chance to get regular minutes? He's actually played fewer minutes than DeAndre Liggins this year, which I wouldn't have expected coming into the season. I think part of that early on had to do with the fact that he was involved in potential trade rumors and they didn't want to get him hurt. But can he get regular minutes? I think he can get regular minutes, yes. The question is, how many minutes? I don't know if he'll ever get, you know, say, 17 minutes a night. But if he can spell JR or spell Shumpert for 10 minutes a game, that would be super beneficial because then that's more time that LeBron can rest, JR can rest, and could give McRae some real NBA experience. And... Liggins has played twice as much as McRae, although then again, we're talking about 14 minutes and 7 minutes, so I don't want to read too much into that. But do you think Liggins is going to have a regular role, or, I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier, just with the free agent stuff, but I'm not sure there's a role for him, just because I'm not sure that on the wing is really an area of weakness for them. I think their biggest issue right now is just who's going to play behind Kyrie Irving. Yeah, I would be really surprised if DeAndre Liggins ends up with a regular rotation role for this team because he just doesn't fit. Like, he doesn't fill a need that they have, like you said. He doesn't do anything spectacularly better than anybody else, so he's just going to be a guy at the end of the bench who you go to in garbage time. He's just a body at this point, I feel like. Yeah, and last in the look at Cleveland Wings, just really quickly, James Jones looks like he's more of a locker room guy at this point that somebody's going to play regularly. Does that sound about right to you? Oh, yeah. James Jones is effectively filling the Jawan Howard role that he had in Miami. <laughs> yeah, James Jones is just along for the ride at this point. He's just looking to win rings and be around LeBron James. I mean, hey, he has been to six straight finals. He has been. It's incredible. He he brought LeBron James to six straight finals. It's an, it's an unbelievable achievement. Yeah, well, people need to stop disrespecting James Jones and just what an incredible job he's done of leading LeBron to all these finals appearances. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about one of your articles recently on the Hashtag Basketball website, which, by the way, HashtagBasketball.com. You can read both of our stuff about once a week. But you talked about how Iman Shumpert is sort of ready to make the next step in 2016-2017. And so far, he has been awesome. For Cleveland. He's yes. 53% from deep. He's playing fantastic defense. And I think the most important thing for them is he's filling in some of those backup point guard minutes. But let's just go back to that offense really quickly. I don't think it's sustainable at the level that he's been playing now, but do you think it's sustainable in that it might be closer to where he is now 
than last year and what was really a down year for him. I'm going to have a cop out and say yes and no. I'm really big on tempering expectations, and I really think everything eventually will regress to the mean. So I don't think he'll shoot 28% like he did last year. I also don't think he'll shoot 53% from deep for the year. I think it'll end up being somewhere in the high 30s, which would be tremendous for the Cavs because essentially last year he was dead weight on offense, and this year he's actually contributing. Yeah, that's also been huge for them just because, as you talked about earlier, JR has been slumping early. But really where Iman is going to hang his hat is going to be on the defensive end of the floor. And he was coming back from, from injury this offseason. But, I mean, so far, his defenses look at the level that it was, you know, back when people were considering him as an up-and-coming 3-and-D type player. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that over the summer, he got in much better shape. You know, he lost 12 pounds, which is hard for a guy of his build to do. He worked out with Kyrie a lot, which helped his shot, obviously. Let's just talk about his role as backup point guard this year. That's a position of major need for the Cavs and something he's been feeling quite capably, actually, so far this season. Do you think, you know, long term with Kay Felder returning to the rotation, do you think he's still going to be the primary backup point guard, or do you think he's just going to be a wing type of player that gets spot minutes at the one? If you're asking me in January, yeah, he's going to be the primary backup point guard. If you're asking me in March, that might be a different conversation. I don't know. It depends on how Kay Felder does, and it depends on if Shumpert can actually keep up what he's doing. His offensive rating is 121, which is 24 points above what it was last year. So that shows that while he's on the floor running the backup point, like, the team isn't stagnant. They're still scoring. They're still moving the ball, which is all you can ask for. It's also, by the way, seven points above Cleveland's offensive rating as a team, which leads the NBA right now. Well, I mean, there's there you go. The proof is in the pudding. He's doing great. So I don't see any reason why he would be removed from that role. Although the one issue with him in that role so far has just been that his turnovers have spiked. Yeah, and that's a product of the ball being in his hands a lot more. His turnover percentage is a career-high 22 this year, which isn't great, obviously. But that's only because, A, he's not used to being the backup point guard, and B, he's still learning. So, all things considered, I'd say it's a success so far. Yeah, I mean, he's he's looking good. He, he really is. So, let's move on just really quickly to your previews for this week, and then we'll go into a discussion of what's already happened this season. I mean, they're 6-1. and one. They're clearly looking good, but let's just go over some of their games from this week. They played against the Hawks yesterday. That was first loss of the year, but the fact that that's their first loss of the year is still impressive. Then they're traveling to Washington. They are. They are traveling to the nation's capital for a meeting with President Obama tomorrow. And then Friday night, they face the hapless Wizards in Washington. One thing that I'd like to point out about the Wizards, even though we're talking about the Cavs right now, I'm going to go off topic. I think the Wizards are actually being hurt by Scotty Brooks because if you look at what's happening, it's very reminiscent of what happened in Oklahoma City under Scotty Brooks. Their offense is stagnant, and I think that's why they're doing as well at losing as they are right now. They've only won one game, according to my knowledge. And so I think this game could possibly be a trap game for the Cavs on Friday because of meeting with the president tomorrow. So it's just something to look out for. Wizards are 1-5. They are in the bottom 10 of the league in both offensive and defensive rating. Not great. No, not great at all. And I guess the biggest worry for the Cavs in terms of it being a trap game is if Bradley Beal and John Wall have 
excellent games. Cleveland's going to have trouble defending them. Oh, absolutely, because John Wall and Bradley Beal are two tremendous players, better than anybody on the 76ers, let's say, who gave the Cavs a game last week. So if Bradley Beal and John Wall can both put it together for a night, I think they could absolutely upset the Cavs. John Wall is also the kind of player that has given the Cavs problems in the past and that he's an incredibly fast point guard. But not only is he an incredibly fast point guard, he's also 6'4 and strong. Like He's the kind of player that can just tear the Cavs apart, getting to the rim, and if the three-point shooters around him are hitting shots, they could definitely pull out a win against Cleveland. Let's move on to the Hornets game on Sunday. The Hornets, unlike the Wizards, very much unlike the Wizards, they are currently the second best team in the Eastern Conference. They're at 5-1. and one. They're looking awesome. And I thought the Hornets were going to be better than most people coming into the season, if only because the Vegas line for them started at 40 wins when they were returning probably their second best player in Michael Kidd Gilchrist from having missed all the seven games last year. But they're looking great on defense. They're once again in the top five. They're actually third in defensive rating and fifth in points allowed per game. And their offense has been average, which if you're the Hornets, that is more than good enough. Yeah, I think they're the surprise of the NBA this year. I mean, I never would have thought that they would start off. They beat the Jazz tonight, so they're 6-1 and one now. I never would have expected them to be tied for first in the Eastern Conference after two weeks. That's not something I had in the plans because you said the line was poorly place, I guess, at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's just me. I I was big on the Hornets, but I did not expect them to be as good as they've been. Like, there's a big difference between, I think they're going to be better than 500, I think they're going to play a playoff team, and they're currently tied for first in the East. They're ahead of Toronto, they're ahead of Boston, they're ahead of, they're ahead of everybody. Yeah, they're on, they're on pace to have home court in the first round, which is something that I never would have ever thought I would say about a former Charlotte Bobcat team. Especially this soon after they were the Charlotte Bobcats. Speaking of the Bobcats, LeBron, for some reason, has had absolutely no problem dispatching the Charlotte team over the course of the last six years. Since he went to Miami and came back to Cleveland, he's lost to the team one time. So I don't know if that has something to do with wanting to show up Michael Jordan because Jordan owns the Hornets and or former Bobcats. So I don't know what it is, but LeBron seems to love feasting on the Charlotte teams. That being said, Charlotte did not have Michael Kidd-Gilchrist last season, and Michael Kidd-Gilchrist is one of the few players in the league that can give LeBron problems. It's very true. All right, so let's move on from discussion of this week's games to a quick look at their schedule so far this year. Obviously, they won their first six games. But what stood, was there any game in particular that stood out to you for, for the Cavs? The Boston game stood out to me. I was expecting that game to be more like what happened against the Magic, the 76ers, and the Hawks. But for some reason, and I understand that Boston's defense is down this year compared to where it was, Cleveland just came out like gangbusters and absolutely shot the lights out. I think they scored 128 points on Boston, which just absolutely blew my mind. It showed me like what their ceiling is, and if they play like that in a four-game series, I don't see anybody, even the Golden State Warriors, beating them. The Boston game, they won 128-122. I was surprised they allowed Boston to score that much, but Boston was also playing without Al Horford, who will make a huge difference for them on the defensive end. 
and Jay Crowder, I think. Yeah, exactly. And, and Jay Crowder, who's, if not their best defensive player, because you have to give credit to Avery Bradley. He's a huge defensive piece for them. So, I don't know. On the one hand, Cleveland just shot the lights out in that game. But on the other hand, allowing 122 to Boston team missing two of their four best players was kind of interesting for me. It also showed some bad things, as you pointed out, with the defense. I was mainly focused on the offense because that's what catches people's attention more. But yeah, giving up 122 points is awful. But if you can still outscore the other team, it's I mean, you got to do just enough to win, right? Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And it's not like they haven't been able to stop teams on the defensive end. Because as I said earlier, they're currently 17th in defensive rating, but that's hugely inflated by giving up 120 to Houston, who is a fantastic offensive team. And that 122-point performance by the Celtics but their first three games, they allowed 88, 91, and 99 points. So that defensive number, I think, is a bit of a mirage this early in the season just because they've had two relative outlier scoring games. Yeah, I agree. I think it'll be closer to the, I don't know, 100 mark rather than what what are they, what are they giving up? They're currently giving up 104 per game. I think it'll be closer to 100. Yeah, I think that's a fair mark. All right, so... Let's dig into some of the stats more. We've been talking about some of this with the offensive ratings, but I think this, the most interesting thing for me is that LeBron is currently leading the Cavs in win shares at 1.3. The thing that's surprising to me is Kevin Love is actually second. He's got himself up to a win share already seven games into the season. He's looking a lot better in general, first of all, but He's looked like a lot better fit offensively. His three-point shooting hasn't been particularly efficient, but he's been a decent threat overall. He's nearly at 90% from the free-throw line. How's he looked so far this year? Kevin Love, in my opinion, has been their most consistent player. He scored 18 or more points every game. If you look at his per 36 numbers, which just extrapolate his numbers to the 36-minute average, he's putting up Minnesota Kevin Love numbers. It's 23.8 points a game and 9.7 rebounds. So he's doing work on the offensive and defensive ends of the floor, getting rebounds, putting up shots. He's looked fantastic. I think part of this has to do with the fact that he won the title. That validated him, I guess, in his mind because he's very kind of finicky when it comes to mentality and stuff like that. So him coming into the year confident, he had a full offseason to work out, he got stronger. I think it's really starting to show based on what you said and the fact that the eyes don't lie, like he looks a lot better. Yeah, and the offseason thing I think is big as well. The fact that he was able to work out this offseason rather than last offseason where he was coming back from that shoulder surgery and basically just couldn't couldn't work out until right before the season started, right? Yeah. I mean, that's huge, especially when you're a big man like Love who is occasionally asked to play center by the Cavs and who is a banger on, on the glass. The fact that he just was undersized for what he wanted to be just in terms of how he could be at his most effective. I think one thing, too, that's getting overlooked is the fact that like with the surgery surgery we mentioned, is the fact that when he's going into the paint, when he's banging, he doesn't have to worry about, oh, I just had surgery. What happens if this gets re-aggravated or re-injured? Because he's fully healthy now, he doesn't have to have that in the back of his mind, and he can play with a reckless abandon that we've seen. All right, you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Benjamin Winks, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-W-I-N-K-S. You can follow me at NBA underscore Johnson. J-O-H-N-S-O-N. 
You can also follow hashtag basketball at hash basketball. You can follow our work on hashtag basketball.com. Ben is a regular preview writer for the Cavs. I write for the Nets and occasionally for the Kings. Check us out. Check out the rest of the hashtag basketball podcast network. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you might be listening to this podcast. If you have any feedback, feel free to shoot me a message on Twitter. I'd love to hear from all of you, and thanks so much for listening.